I'm here at the Park Hyatt with Daniel Cross, who is the director of this amazing movie called I Am the Blues. Uh, he was kind enough to send me uh, a, a preview copy last week, and I was so blown away by it that I thought, I need to talk to this person. So I want to talk about the, the movie, but before I do, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you come from, a little bit sure. about your background? So I was raised in Crystal Beach, Ontario, down by Niagara Falls on Lake Erie. It used to be a Kearney town. And so uh, I had a lot of fun around the roller coaster. And uh, I was basically a hockey player. That's uh, what, what I spent most of my time doing until I was about 18 years old. And then uh, I went on Katimovic, Katimovic, where it's like a federal youth program where you travel around and do public work, volunteer for a year in okay. different communities in Canada. And that's where I got like kind of introduced to the world like the, my first day there I actually brought my hockey equipment to to Katimovic with my clothes kind of stuffed inside <laughs> around it and the first day in Katimovic we had seaweed cashew soup and I was just like what the fuck is this <laughs> where, is, where is that where? Um, well Katimovic's not a place oh, okay, so sorry. we were in Coatico Quebec okay and okay. 30 people between the ages of 17 and 21 came to Coatico Quebec as part of a federal government youth program Similar to Canada World Youth. Quebec? Uh, No, it's in the Eastern Townships, right? It's almost touching Vermont border. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it's Dairyland. And we stayed there for three months and did uh, community work. And we made a dollar a day. And the government gives you, like, you live in a house and food is supplied, like seaweed cashew soup and... And, uh, you know, half of them were like veggies. And I was like a hockey player. I didn't know anything (laughs) but hockey. And so it was really my coming of age being there because I was just 17 and a lot of the people were like 21. Mm -hmm. So there was for me a big age age gap. And uh, then I decided after that that I should try to go back to like I went to community college and tried to continue getting an education more or less, In- but gradually, uh, well, I went to Langara, which is Vancouver Community College, and then I kind of flunked out, but I ended up at Capilano College doing outdoor wilderness management. So they have a, a very high-end two-year uh, like professional canoeing, rock climbing, mountaineering uh, program, Right. where you that's what you do for those two years is you, and you learn like different management and basically people end up working for the parks and things like that and I did it but uh I you know I I loved the blues and so I was always going downtown and carousing and smoking and drinking and coming to class hungover and everybody else was like constantly in Gore-Tex and and (laughs) and you know let's go let's go and I was kind of like coughing and hacking and so I loved it and to this day, it's been a great element to my life that I'm sensitive and I like the outdoors or sensitive to the outdoors and know how to do some of those things. And you still but, love the blues. Yeah. And so tell me about gradually the, the blues took over, yeah. Tell me about the connection with the blues. How, what is that? How does that happen? When, when I was 17, well, first of all, I took guitar lessons when I was a kid. And like anybody that takes guitar lessons it's like they sucked. It's like I never played a song that I had ever heard of in my life, you know, and you just do scales and you'd play this crap. And I didn't have a good enough ear 
while I was taking the lessons that I could just go off on my own and start to noodle to Leonard Skinner or right. something or Alice Cooper or something. I was stuck looking at the notes and playing. And I would, my brother would go before me and we had to go to Port Coburn, which is like half an hour away. because I, I lived nowhere. And, and it was Gino Rossi's music school. And he had like a storefront cause he sold instruments and everything. And there was music books. And I used to look at all the music books and there was a BB King songbook. And I didn't know who B.B. King was, but that was the book that I wanted to learn from because he just looked so cool. It was like just B.B. King with his guitar. And I would flip because I'd kill time. And I'd flip through that book and read the titles and go, oh, that's, that's so cool. And so I took the book into my teacher and said, I want, and he just laughed at me and basically told me I don't practice enough and you don't have the right to play B.B. King. And, uh, and uh, gradually I just completely stopped. I had an electric guitar and an amp. I don't even know what happened to it. <laughs> So I was expecting you to say at one point I saw this movie and I wanted to be, become a filmmaker. How did that happen? Well, then when I was 17, I went to the jazz festival in Vancouver in Jericho Beach and they were advertising the world's biggest Winnebago. I guess I was 18 because it was after Katimovic. Um, The world's biggest Winnebago was coming from Chicago full of blues musicians. And I was with my buddy Lewis and we used to always go to the railway club on Dunbar Street and they brought in like Hubert Sumlin and I just realized, wow, this is great. I really like the blues. So I said to Lewis, we got to go down there. And it's like a big park. So we went down early and down by the playground was a guy smoking a cigarette, all dressed in black, black guy. You know, he looked, you know, in his fifties, let's say sixties. And I'm like, Lewis, that's no way that's a grandfather. That's got to be one of these guys from Chicago. Let's go say hi to him. And like, I like the blues, but I didn't really know anything about the blues. So it turned out it was Frank Frost. And Frank Frost is like, hey, I'm Frank Frost. And he's like crazy. And he's like, take me to the liquor store. Where's the liquor store? Really, I'm not. There's like, the, I couldn't even begin to be the caricature that he was on that day. Now, this part you might want to edit out, but this is true. So we have to take him to the Kitsilano liquor store, which is hippie central Vancouver, which, you know, back then, which would have been the 90s, was bo booming. It was not even the 90s, it was the 80s like 1980 and all the time we're walking to the liquor store he's asking women like i'm frankie frost show me your pussy and stuff like this and we're just like holy fuck who's this guy like it's not right he you know no so we end up we get and buddy's also charming and kind of sweet we get to the liquor store he gives me a, a box and he gives lewis a box and we walk straight to the vodka and he buys 24 bottles of vodka fills up my case Fills up Lewis's case. Now we're afraid of him, basically. Like, oh my God, what did we get into? And he's like, rah, 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 I'm Frankie Frost. And he's just like, maybe by that time he was a bit wet brained, you know, obviously had a yeah. drinking problem. So we arrived back at the world's Winnes Win biggest Winnebago with 24 bottles of vodka. So we are just friggin' heroes. <laughs> and in the Winnebago is Reverend Dan Smith, Honey Boy Edwards, Kansas City Red, Big Jim Brewer. Sonny Terry, uh, and I'm forgetting probably four or five others. Jane Sapp is there. There's a woman contingent who's just like trash, and he's like, guys are all going to hell. <laughs> and it's unbelievable. They just love us because we got all the booze, and they've got all their prescription pills, so they're like flying. Yeah. And then the guy that brought, brings them, his name was Morris Frank of Earwig. 
okay. the guy from Earwig right, Records. Right. I think his name was Morris Frank. No, I think somebody else. It's not it's, right, it's, is it? It's, so that guy from yeah. Earwig Records, again, I didn't know from Adam, comes over to me and Lewis and lays the biggest guilt trip in the world about what we've just done. You realize these guys are all alcoholics and like you're gonna, they're gonna, you're, you've just killed them. They, they could very well just die today. Like they'll just drink themselves to death. Why do you think they're blind? Why do you think this? And we're just like 17, 18 year old kids and we're just kind of like, holy shit. <laughs> Anyways, we became the roadies for that week. Like, cause at those, at those festivals, like five tenths, so they'd play for half an hour here and then yeah. the, it'd be the guitar over there and then the drummer over there and we just schlep and move them around and, and uh, became their friends. Then they left and I never saw them again. Later, when I was 28 is when I became a filmmaker. Uh, I went to film school. <clears throat> and one thing I always wanted to do was, was kind of do that film. And of course, they were all dying and it wasn't happening. And I never managed to really just go on a pilgrimage, let's say. Right. And then it happened uh, in the last couple of years. Okay, so. Right at the very end. How did you decide to become a filmmaker? I was uh, living in uh, Nova Scotia. And I started the first bicycle courier company in Nova Scotia, uh, Cycle Courier. Mm -hmm. And I was doing that and I was uh, living right on Barrington Street, which is the main street. And right across the street uh, was the National Film Board. And on the top of the National Film Board was the Atlantic Filmmakers Co-op. So on Thursdays, they were showing free movies and they were documentaries. And so I started going on Thursdays to watch these documentaries and they were excellent and uh, classic. Uh, and my wife was studying at NASCAD, Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. So I ended up uh, getting in to take one photography course. And that photography course introduced me to the filmmakers co-op where they were doing an introduction to filmmaking. And I learned how to use a Bolex camera <laughs> and realized that I wanted to make documentaries because of the influence of watching these documentaries and then starting to use the camera. And uh, so I applied uh, to Concordia because Concordia has a mature entry. Actually, I went to Dalhousie to King's College because I wanted to do the foundation. I got rom romantically uh, idealized that I would sit under a tree and read all the classics and do this like sabbatical of thinking. And when I went for my academic counseling, to apply, the guy told me all I could do was take phys ed because I could not validate to them that I knew how to read or write. <laughs> and I actually flipped over the table we were sitting on and, and, and walked out. Then I learned that Concordia, you can get into Concordia because it used to be <clears throat> the downtown campus, excuse me, <clears throat> the downtown campus at Concordia used to be a Y. So they have a big history of adult education and they have all night courses and all this kind of stuff. So I was able to apply to Concordia without a transcript and it just so happens they also have the biggest cinema school in Canada like they have a huge a hugely successful cinema school that today now I'm a teacher at I am uh, so being a documentary filmmaker is not an easy thing correct no yeah that's why I have a day job <laughs> did you know that when you first got into it I mean no was it I had not about no that? idea all I wanted to really do was when I got to Concordia because actually I was working in Newfoundland at the time so I took the train to Montreal and all I knew is that the NFB was there, the Montreal Canadiens were there 
and I was going to Concordia to the CB building, and I thought I was going to the CBC, <laughs> and it turned out to be an annex that was like almost condemned, to meet some famous Chinese filmmaker named Tom Waugh, who turned out not to be Chinese at all. Uh, he was a professor, and I, I was like completely like, I don't know. I thought I was this. I had it all. I had the picture all in my head. And I still remember going to the university in the summer to have a, like a, a meeting, an advisory meeting. And then I learned, well, you're a mature entry student. You can't even do filmmaking. You have to do a year of math and English and French, and then you can apply. I said, but you accepted me. Because, yeah, we accepted you into the university through the School of Cinema, but you're not in the School of Cinema. You have to apply next year to get into the School of Cinema. So that gave me actually an extra year to think about wanting to be a filmmaker. And I kind of audited some of the courses and learned because I didn't really know. Right. All I, I mean, when I went to the movies, I went to uh, Terminator and stuff. I didn't really do, I didn't study the world of cinema by any means. And uh, then I had to put together a portfolio, which I didn't even have when I got there. And I, I, I ended up getting in. Well, it looks like you, it turned out pretty good for you. Yeah, well, I was older, so my very first film uh, turned out to be a feature film, even my filmmaking one film. Wow. I just kept working on it, and it became a feature, my first feature film called The Street, I, a film with the homeless. So for like 10 years, yeah, for like 10 years, I did nothing but work on street, street films. Okay. And uh, Jimmy James, did, uh, I don't know if you know Jimmy James, but he's one of Canada's famous guitar blues yes, men. Yes. He did the soundtrack for oh, wow. The Street. And yeah. He's a phenomenal guitar yeah, player. So that's a really good soundtrack. And I don't know where the master tapes are, but I should. <laughs> and I, uh, Peter Wintonic, who is my, my main mentor in filmmaking, who passed away just recently and uh, has the like, Order of Canada as a filmmaker. Uh, here in Canada, um, introduced me to Jimmy James. And so I called him up to come for the recording session. And he answers the phone. I go, Jimmy, so we're meeting at nine o'clock. He goes, okay, nine o'clock, good. And I said, uh, do you want me to have like a breakfast sandwich? And I, go, I hear, oh, oh, like this is the biggest moan and groan. He goes, not in the morning, not in the morning. It was, <laughs> I was just like, oh, I'll get you some eggs. And, and so I had, no, that that was like a complete dead end, and we I think we did we started at eleven at night. <laughs> but you've done a lot of work with the homeless. A lot, yeah. And and yeah, I, I understand you continue to do so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it it, it went in stages from almost living on the street as a student, uh, making this film uh, on the on the spot with my uh, filmmaker. Uh, colleague at the time Richard Boyce and uh, when that film was done after 10 years we went on and I uh, made a film with the squeegee punks that were just starting and they were just kids and they were like announcing their poverty right on the street right like right. I'm fucking homeless and I'm a drug addict and I'm cleaning your window and you're going to pay attention it was so different than hiding in the back with the old Irish guys drinking drinking wine and hiding and I went, whoa, this is, and so I made that film, which turned out to be, I gave a kid a camera named Roach, and he made four more films after that. Like he turned his life around through film. So then I learned my motto became self-expression, uh, build self-esteem. And uh, he continued to make films at our company. And then we started a thing called Homeless Nation, 
which was a website that we started for street people that went across the whole country uh, uh, aligning with street level uh, missions and anywhere at a street level creating uh, access to cameras and uh, internet and everybody would build their own profile page and we ended up with 5,000 what we called members wow. 5,000 different people off the street who had active profile pages and there were anything from poetry. We actually released a few uh, CDs and uh, and video, and they had uh, their own news. Was it was called Homeless Nation uh, Reports or Investigates, and so they had like this little in Vancouver, which is obviously a huge homeless uh, population, and became one of our most active hubs. So during the whole Olympics the Homeless Nation Investigates team would go with their cardboard box that they had built and set it up right in the middle of anything and report live and then stream it on, on Homeless Nation. And we did things at the World Urban Forum uh, with the United Nations and uh, it, was, it was exhausting. Mm -hmm. And then after, well, it started in 1999, which was too early. The, that's, that's, it was a bit ahead of its time or before its right. time. And around it ended around 2008, and now I I don't do it at all. The site is there, and people can see the archive of it. But uh, I, I I just stopped, and I went and made the blues movie. <laughs> well, good for you for doing that. I mean, that's pretty amazing. So let's talk about the blues movie. Tell me the genesis of this. I mean, I think you kind of explained the genesis of the idea, but tell me how this particular project started. Well, I was super lucky. Uh, Pop Montreal, which is our version of South by Southwest brought the Ponderosa Stomp, who's Dr. Ike, who runs a, a, a show every October in New Orleans with old and kind of lost or forgotten musicians. Mm -hmm. And he brought Barbara Lynn and uh, Little Buck and a couple of other people, Lazy Lester, to Pop Montreal. And I was like, wow, this is great. This is like, this is okay. It awakened all my wanting to make this film. So I went to Dan Sullivan afterwards and I said, can you introduce me to Dr. Ike? And he did. And Dr. Ike decided based on the Frank Frost story actually, so he says now anyways, that that was good enough for him to help me out. And he's an anesthesiologist at the New Orleans Trauma Center. So when he works, he works, but he gets chunks of time off. And he said, well, if you get down here by this day, I'll pick you up at this place and we'll, we'll, we'll take off. And I did, and it was a cold meeting. He showed up, I got in the car, and we went and rented a van, and John Price, the cinematographer, who's from Toronto, and he just took us to everybody's house. You know, like, we went and saw little Freddie King, then we went and met Alain Toussaint, and then we went and met Irving Bannister, and then we went and met Teeny Hodges, which is all the way in Memphis, so we drove all the way, through. and then we, on the way back, we stopped in Jackson and met Bobby Rush. And then we stopped at the Blue Front in Bentonia and met Jimmy Duck Holmes. Sorry, and what year was this? When did this happen? This would have been three, three summers ago. So I guess 2011, 12? So no, it's not 2014, it's 2016. <laughs> 2013. Yeah, so 13, 14, okay. somewhere And then there. at that point, you have a camera, you're traveling around, you're meet, meeting all these people at their homes, you're shooting. Yeah. At, at this point, what do you have in your mind as to what the movie is? Well... What I knew is that I wanted, you know, I was being selfish. I wanted to meet as many of them as I could. And I was also sort of panicking because all I was really doing was interviewing them. They, there, there wasn't 
prep beforehand. Mm -hmm. Literally, Dr. Reich would kind of call them while we were on the highway going to their house. We're coming because over. Because they love him because he actually gave, gave them back, most of them, their first gig. Mm -hmm. Like Bobby Rush was always gigging, you know, or, but some of them were just no longer active. And Dr. Ike discovered them or rediscovered them, brought them to the Ponderosa Stomp, got them in a big show, and now they were recording artists again. So I was curious <clears throat> as to the, the artists that you chose, and um, you mentioned a few of them, but um, it was an interesting group of people. And, and I know that in, in making films, sometimes you have to sell the idea and have as many big names as possible. And Bobby Rush is a big name, and Lazy Lester's a name as well. But was that ever a concern in terms of your project here? Well, I decided that I didn't want to work with musicians who had management because I had made a movie with hockey players, black hockey players, actually, a lovely film. And the old timers were unbelievable. Herb Carnegie, Richard Lord. It was really like working with these blues guys. They'd gone through hell and they helped. They still had their class and their dignity and they were just awesome. But then I went to the current players to try and I realized they didn't know their history at all. And I had to start dealing with their managers and the National Hockey League and the Players Association. And it just sucked. <laughs> it just sucked. It's like censorship on right. the nth degree. So uh, with this movie, I just didn't want to have to deal with managers. And because the Ponderosa Stomp uh, dic uh, edict is rediscovering kind of forgotten musicians who were and are talented, uh, Dr. Ike knew all these kind of medium level kind of people. And I wanted to work in the South. I didn't want to like go to the Buddy Guys Club in Chicago. You know, I wanted to like kind of be able to go to their homes and where they lived. And I wanted to go to the South. I didn't want to make the blues movie in New York. And I wanted to meet as many as possible. So I was totally open on that trip to just meeting. And Dr. Ike's not a filmmaker, he's a musicologist. So he just wants to meet them all and ask them obscure questions about dates and B-sides of 45s. And I was like, no, this isn't going to work. I want to like the questions I want to ask are all general and get what, them. Well, talk about that. <clears throat> Tell me about what, what, what was the goal when you went and like, ideally, what was the what did you want to get out of the interview from these people when you met? Well, them? Like, you know, like the interview, you know, like uh, wasn't wasn't so much that the interview would be important, but to try to get them active. Mm -hmm. So could I get them with their friends? Did they still, what, what, how was the blues alive with them and in their life and not like kind of telling old stories from days gone by? And that was ultimately what I was, what I wanted to do. So in meeting them in these initial interviews, I was looking for characters, people that were like going to play while they were talking or open to that or would get up. And so when I like, when I met R.L. Boyce, the film really blossomed for me because R.L. Boyce literally took me for a car ride and left Dr. Ike behind. Because really it was Dr. Ike going into their house and me following behind him. Right. And then they would agree to the interview and Dr. Ike was very much leading the first interviews and I was more absorbing and trying to figure out what am I gonna do? And I'm a verite filmmaker, so I don't want to do a talking head film. I don't want to use any narration. Mm -hmm. I don't want to interview anybody about anybody else, like a Muscle Shoals type right. film. I want to I want to get to know them being them. So when RL started taking me around and showing me things, then I started believing in myself and the craft that I knew how to do and that 
I could start to uh, request that and start to take like take them places or say let's let's do more than just sit around let's get a crawfish boil happening uh, right. let's 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 jam you know and and so some of it is those interviews and then other parts of it are just like live live moments and that came from kind of hanging out and and getting my feet wet and my awareness to the location and to locales and to the characters and figuring out okay the blue front is the blue front and Jimmy Duck Holmes is committed to the blues and these guys all live in that vicinity. So let's get them together, you know? So that's kind of fabricated them, like the idea of getting them together. They didn't just all show up there that morning, <laughs> no. you know, but, but, but I, but I, they're all agreeable to this idea. Absolutely. And then they come and then I don't do much once they come. I just kind of, some of them went inside, some of them stayed outside. Uh, just kind of float around and, try to capture the the moments and then gradually they decide to get together and start playing and so how many shoot days did you have at in that original visit that was like 10 days of driving around and uh going from new orleans through to memphis hill country delta uh new orleans and then ira ira again dr ike same guy said, you know, everybody's done what you just did. You need to go to Lafayette. You need to go somewhere else. I'm telling you the blues is alive in Lafayette and it's it's a living, dynamic, active community. It's not a tourist zone. Right. You know, because the Delta is kind of barren. You know, most of them moved long time ago. And when you go to Tupweiler or you go, besides Clarksdale, you go to these places, there ain't nothing there. Yeah. There's like no blues there. There's a billboard about blues. Right. And there's a lot of people living with the blues because it's yeah, yeah. as oppressed as you can imagine. But at, at music-wise, it's hip-hop and rap and other types of, of, of music that blues has evolved Had you been into. down there before um, in that area? Never in Mississippi, I don't believe. No, no, to be honest with you, no. Okay, so I when hadn't. you did this 10-day trip and you came out of that experience... What were your impressions about the blues? Um, that's a good question. My, you know, my my main my 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 two main impressions were one that the place was extremely like Mississippi uh, Delta was extremely kind of desolate and barren, and had done a hundred percent shift from the time that the center was a vibrant plantation controlled hub. Right. to what really was Walmart suburbs some 10 kilometers away. Yeah. And there's like no gray at all. And it's like to get breakfast, you went to the gas station and got grits and fried chicken. For lunch, you went to the gas station and got grits and fried chicken. We ran out of, we needed a memory card and we didn't know where to go. And we saw Walmart, we went into the Walmart and we called it the meat sweats. We actually saw produce. I never ever went to a Walmart, never ever thought of produce or anything really, yeah, yeah. but corruption. And <laughs> we just like, it was like, oh, and we like ran over and got green peppers and bananas. And it was just like in those, in those center hubs was, is, I, 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 it's just desolate. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, really made me realize that where the blues came from, the pain that it came from and the kind of 
escapism that the blues provided for for the workers and how attached blues is to the land and blues is to the people that that lived it you know it's like their it's it, it's their journal sort of thing and and so for me that was really strong because you know we would go to all like we would we would go to Tutwiler and we'd go to Sonny Boy Williams grave and we'd go to Greenwood and we'd go to the pole monkeys and to the blue front and to Dockery farms and and you know you'd read and think or whatever but just for me being Canadian and just being in some of these places and just seeing the emptiness of it now and imagining when they decided to take the train to Mississippi mm -hmm. I mean to Chicago right. and that 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 was uh, really uh, powerful for me. And the other thing that was really powerful for me, well, two other things. One was meeting the musicians, and how amazing these eighty-year-old people are. Like how they're able to live through, and we probably all know that through our grandparents, because the world was a hard place between World War II, internment camps, uh, slavery, civil rights, racism. Um, they're so they're so great. Mm -hmm. They're so generous. They didn't know me from anything, and they have like a glow in their eyes, and they sing beautifully and they choose to talk about nice stuff and they don't really want to be all bummed out. And I didn't want to ask them those questions because right. it wasn't it wasn't about me asking them questions. It was about hanging out and letting them be themselves. And so a lot of questions aren't answered in this movie, you know, like you don't learn the, the how the blues originated or in what town something happened or what date something right. happened. But that energy, that joie de vivre was like, so great because it made my life better just being around them was like just great and i i, I couldn't wait to go back so know? after the 10 days first of all did anybody resist the idea was anybody against the idea of being filmed or i mean i don't know if that's even important but the only real uh moment of turmoil was at the very end it was really hard for lazy lester because when, when we went to lock down the songs and everything, Lazy Lester had to come to the realization that he didn't own his own songs. Oh. And that made him angry. And he got angry at us. And because we were just like yet another gang of white people stealing right. his mm -hmm. music in a way that he no longer owned. And so even if we were to buy the rights and everything else, it wasn't wasn't with him so he like didn't want to participate you know we filmed him for like three years right um and so we you know we talked and it took a really long time like like uh months for him to come around and, and we just kept editing the film with lazy lester in it and knew that maybe we'd have to take it out um and then we just decided that we went back to lazy and said whatever the rights cost for this music with the people, I don't really want to name yeah, the yeah. other names. Yeah. We're just going to give you the same amount of money. We, by law, have to give them money. Right. Whatever that money is, we're going to give to you as if you own the music, you know. Well, good for you. And the only other thing that was a bit awkward is when we got Henry Gray to sign, who had a manager who 
according to Henry Gray, wasn't his manager, but was blocking us from getting in touch with Henry Gray. Mm -hmm. So when we had the crawfish boil scene, Henry Gray wasn't even there. And little Buck goes, where's Henry? I thought Henry was coming. We're like, they won't. And like, you see little Buck jump in his van and like 35 minutes later, Henry Gray's there with little Buck. So when we get him to sign the uh, release form, we go like, what about this guy, this manager? Like, and he goes, he's not my manager. And Ira talks more direct with them. Um, Cause Ira was, was used to hiring them for right. concerts and stuff. So he had that relationship with them, which I didn't really have. And so it was clear. So then he sits down, he's like, like this, pulls his gun out, puts it on the table. <laughs> We're just like, oh shit, <laughs> Canadians are like, oh, okay. Right. And then Henry's 89 and like packing on his way to the crawfish boil. Oh, you, but, it's funny about Lazy Lester. I know that he you, he used to walk around with his single uh, printed on this right. t-shirt yeah, on and he gives them yeah. away. And, yes. and uh, he's very proud of his past. So yeah. it must've been yeah. quite an awakening. So, so. I'd really like to uh, meet up with uh, Lazy because right now my objective is I got to get to Lafayette and Baton Rouge and play the film. And I need to make sure that Lazy who lives in California now comes down for that. So right. I've been working on making that happen. So after the 10 days, did you have a pretty good idea what the film was going to be? No, not not after the first trip. The first trip had a certain amount of, I was concerned that I wasn't going to be able to bring it together as a film. Well, I knew I had like historical archive right. of 40 different musicians talking about stuff, but I didn't have scenes. And so then I needed one to talk to Dr. Ike and explain to him a little more about kind of what I needed. And I needed to step kind of past Dr. Ike and become the, the front person and start to be a director. And in the first first round, I didn't really do that. Right. I kind of let myself be introduced. And, we, and there's stuff in the film from, from the first shoot. And besides R.L. Boyce, most of it would be elements of, of dialogue and little bits of performing because we'd get them to play on the front porch or something like that. And that wasn't clear to me how that was really going to work out because mm -hmm. I didn't know Dr. Ike very much. And these were, in some ways, these were his relationships, not in some ways, they were mm -hmm. his relationships. And now I need, needed to make them mine. Right. And I wasn't sure that I wanted him to keep coming because he's an A personality, he's a promoter, he's got, you know, He's a distraction. Yeah, he's, yeah. you know, in some ways that's right. Yet he was also glue. For sure. You know, so we, we managed. He, all, he would always say, I don't think I can come, but he would always come because, you know, as a, as a lover of the blues, he, he wanted to be there and I, he was always welcomed. And then I managed that. And actually for the second shoot, I brought my business partner, who's also, we've done a lot of creative work together, but we were both on separate films and I needed him because I needed to feel that stronger. And Mila is so familiar with me that it made me feel stronger. And I could talk with him about how am I gonna like break this down? How am I gonna make this work? How am I gonna, you know, and he, he was very helpful and just bouncing off ideas with me and I could be insecure around him, which I was, I was feeling quite insecure. So at this point, I mean, I'm not sure if that's a normal thing. I mean, I think of a lot of projects I'm involved in, and I think that insecure self-hate, self-doubt, yeah. it's just part of the right. journey. Yeah. Um, but at this point, do you have financing? Do you have any commitment to this project? Yeah, CBC came on uh, up front. 
So Bruce Cowley at the Documentary Channel, CBC Documentary Channel, came in for development. Wow. So that helped me to do this very first trip and put together. So I have after the first trip, I put together a 45 minute uh, trailer to right. go into production uh, with seven characters. I selected what I thought were the seven best characters and spent like six minutes, which each of them telling their stories to validate that I had good storytellers and pretty much all of them played. And uh, two of them kind of, and that was before I had gone to Lafayette. So a couple of them didn't really make the movie very much, Bilbo Walker, and I decided Kenny Brown was just too young. He just kind of- So was that an issue, Kenny Brown being white? Um, not that he was white, it was just more that he was young. Okay. And he just stood He's a phenomenal I mean, player. He, it, and he tells a story that's on the website about his relationship with uh, Joe wow. Calicott and uh, when Joe dies and, and, and he tells a story and he cries while, while he's telling it. And it's, and it's weird, but it's probably the strongest scene I have, period, and yet it's not in the movie. And mm -hmm. it was in the movie forever. And the movie, you know, they just, because there's so many characters, it's rambly and a bit too long. And so I just had to, and Bilbo playing the piano, which uh, a gospel song, which is like through the roof. And Bilbo was was one of the anchors of the film, but it turned out that Bilbo never came to the Blue Front and never came to Lafayette, so he was just adrift. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't he didn't continue in the arc. I always just seemed to meet him alone, except for the one time in Tupweiler and at, and at Pole Monkeys, which where we use him. And so I thought, well, it's like even though his stories and everything I have of him is awesome it doesn't really tie into the film. So it's all on the website. That's the difficult part, right? Of filmmaking is you, you get all the stuff and if it doesn't work to the big piece, yeah. you can't use it. No. The advantage is that if you do a DVD, it's in the bonus checks yes. or whatever. Yeah, there's but... like, there's bonus to the bonus to the bonus on this one. Right. There's like stuff with Alain Toussaint, who I decided was too classy to be in the film. He was just a level different than all these yeah. guys. You know, he was in his suit and tie at a grand piano telling us amazing stuff like is, just is, is there a possibility of it's another piece being born out of this or? i'm thinking i just started talking about i should make a series of shorts mm -hmm. you know just maybe little bio kind of bio pieces standalone shorts that that could play um as opposed to trying to figure out how to tie them all into a bigger narrative but like definitely like that should happen with kenny brown and that should happen with bilbo and that should happen with alain toussaint for sure, because we have great sessions with them. And I just, I, I, when I started documenting the blues and interviewing people, it didn't, I don't know why, it didn't occur to me what that really meant. And very soon after, when you see them disappear, then you think, oh my God, I have footage of so-and-so that nobody else has or other people might have, but all of a sudden you realize how important that it's, piece, and, and, and it could be, you know, buddy guys and whoever, there's tons of stuff. Yeah. Some of the people that you talk to, probably isn't a lot no. of stuff or there probably isn't a lot of good stuff uh, or well shot stuff with good audio and you know I'm that's struck me because these people are not all household names but they contributed to the blues they lived the blues they yeah they you know they've been blues musicians all their lives and yeah. they probably not get the recognition and to have that document was just phenomenal and I don't know at what point that you realize that but I mean, that certainly comes through in watching it. You just think, wow. This well, you is start something. to realize that it's about a lot more than music too. When you're interviewing, uh, you know, black folk 
from the South who are like in their 80s. Mm-hmm. Like you're getting also a living history of a lot of a lot of America's history that they've that they lived head on. And, you know, in general, corporate media is not in, was not interested in, in those voices and a first person lived experience. Mm-hmm. So those would be voices we hear far too rarely. And so, you know, mixed in with stuff about the music is also the stuff about the world that 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 they had to get through. And the I'll lives see Almer and Barbara Lynn with two people who just really stood out when they yeah. played and they talked, especially yeah. Barbara Lynn. What an amazing player. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So to capture that was, well, how lucky were you, you know? See, again, and that's that's Dr. Ike going, we have to go, because Dr. Ike knows 1,001 musicians of this type. Right. And every time I talked to Dr. Ike, there were five more people we had to go see. And I'm like, dude, I can't make a, like, I need like the same seven people over and over i gotta like develop a narrative and i'd be really grumpy and it'd be like oh we're going to meet this one and this one and so barbara lynn i was like i I, you know i just didn't think of her really as as blues i I Mm -hmm. just you know and i was just and oh my god like yeah she she steals she steals the show yeah like by far the two people you fall in love with really are elsie and barbara and a little bit of lazy being a goof (laughs) uh but uh Barbara Lynn is just awesome. She is awesome. So, so fortunate. And then Emmett went back the second time because I had, we were in Mississippi and I couldn't go because I had work that had to be done that day. So Emmett went and saw Barbara Lynn the second time and got the other magic scene that, 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 that's in the movie. So how, how many shoot days did you have? Well, you know. each trip, I mean, and that was part of the reason why I was a bit, uh, worried is because every time I needed to shoot, I had to go to Mississippi and New Orleans and I lived in Canada. So it my old way of just hanging out at the Metro and kind of <laughs> filming for 10 years until I decided to stop wasn't going to work. I had to be organized. So I'd go down for like 10 days. Uh, I would say twice a year for three years. Wow. Okay. Maybe three times a year. And at what point did you know what the movie was going to be? I would say I much more knew what the movie was going to be when I went to Lafayette and was able to get some of the musicians together basically through the help and love of Little Buck Senegal, who is a guy that keeps them all together. Because as much as he's a front man, he's a band guy who knows music and can lead bands so he can keep the music behind Carol Fran and he can accompany Barbara Lynn he and so he's always playing always I mean Eric Clapton says he's he's the best blues guitarist alive in the world um and he's incredible and he's musically so diverse because he was he, he brought electric guitar to uh, Zydeco with Clifton Chenier they mm. didn't really use the guitar before Little Buck not like not like that so he and he has a carport at his parents' old house, which is down the road from where he lives with his wife, where he doesn't do any of this stuff. And he goes there, he goes to mass every morning at six. And then at seven, he goes and gets his coffee. And then he goes and sits outside his carport. And they all come to Little Buck and hang out and play and groove. And that world started opening up. And I started seeing that potential. And that's what I wanted. And so then I started pushing for that at the blue front 
and started knowing what I wanted to do. And by meeting Elsie Elmer, uh, I knew that that could definitely happen. And uh, so kind of had these two parallel worlds. I didn't know how I was going to bring them together. Right. Uh, and so Bobby Rush became that. Because when I met Bobby Rush, Bobby Rush took me aside after the interview and said, I'll help you. I like you. You're like my son. You know, he used overly familiar words mm -hmm. for the first time, but he meant them. And so, and actually Bobby Rush is really, besides Jimmy Duck Combs, I'd say the only guy you could really communicate with from Canada unless you wanted to write them a letter. <laughs> Like you just couldn't really yeah, yeah. call them up or email them or text them, but you could Bobby, because Bobby's a you know he's a touring businessman, so he 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 has the tools. Yes. And so I was able to communicate with him and arrange when I would go. I knew he was available, and Doctor Ike was available, and then we'd outreach to the other other musicians. But the main thing was that Bobby was available, and then he would kind of come and be on a road trip with us that would help connect these various locations. I know that you'd explain what the goal was to, to have them have these people in their element. Was there ever thought of getting somebody like a Clapton or other name musicians to kind of talk about the importance of these people? Or did you ever no. think about that? No, I don't like those kind of movies. Okay. So, and, and that's almost the only types of movies that exist these mm -hmm. days. And I call them the American movies because they're all inter interviewing celebrities about the other and because they have all the celebrities that gets the movie a lot of traction right but i mean oftentimes you have to get names to get broadcasters or festivals to be interested right yeah so yeah and did so, you ever run into that problem of sure the first uh festival that i applied to amsterdam the the reply back was basically these people aren't important enough for the amount of time you're giving them and i don't think the film is relevant and I wrote back, this is really harsh. Like, are you okay? Because I know, I, I know them. I'm like, I've been in the film industry a long right, time. Right. And I said, this just, and then to his credit, he said, yeah, you know, it is pretty harsh email, isn't it? I'll have uh, uh, the head of the festival watch it. And she loved it and, it and it went there, but it almost didn't go because it there, there wasn't a celebrity element. Right. And so Bobby Rush becomes kind of the celebrity. Yeah, yeah. And, if you, and if you know, Barbara Lynn was super famous uh, Carol Fran has the president's medallion of the arts, you know, which is as high as you can get. Uh, so there's there is status in, in in the film, but it's 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 not Buddy Guy for sure, right? If if I, in some ways I wish I'd have had James Cotton, mm -hmm. I would have liked to have had Hubert Sumlin, but that 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 day passed. And if I would have used someone like that, I would have used John Hammond. Right. Okay. But, Good choice. Um, because of Dr. Ike, everything happened uh, organic. There was never like, let's go find somebody or we should. It right. was like, oh, the next one is here. Oh, the next one is there. Okay. We stopped there, but you really should have continued. But as a filmmaker, I mean. So that was, that, that started to become the momentum right. to the film. And I didn't fight with that momentum so anybody that i thought of that could be like a good plant in the movie i just i just let them go like bb king and bobby rush hung out together and i didn't film it because i wanted bobby to be able to have his privacy with bb king i mean i was killing myself afterwards but at that time i thought no this is not a scene in the movie and they're friends and they're just getting together and i don't have the right to just stick my camera everywhere 
and I didn't film it. It was an Indianola. Uh, so stupid. I certainly should have, but at the time so I justified that guy, I, right? I wasn't gonna. Right. And uh, that certainly would have helped to have a B.B. King scene in the movie. But it's always tough, right, to make those decisions. They're and different I, moments than the actual yeah. world you're building in the film. And, and I guess I don't know if people realize just how much you have to shoot and how you have to go through the selection process and get rid of stuff that you really love and yeah. and not shoot some things or you have to, you have to deal with that. hundreds and hundreds of hours, right, yes. of footage. And you, you, you present something 90 minutes long. 90 minutes long is like of hundreds of hours. Yeah. So it's like, you know, one, 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 5% of everything you shoot. And so what would you have learned from this whole experience? Um, well, I, I definitely, I mean, the things that I learned aren't, aren't really specific so much to the blues as to the power of music mm-hmm. and how it, this film has made me happy or happier and how much I like being a part of it and presenting it and seeing, seeing the musicians again. Like I was just in New Orleans uh, immediately before coming here okay. I came here direct and little Freddie King was there with Wacko Wade and Dr. Reich and we showed the movie and it was made me so happy that he was there to be able to see the movie and that people were cheering for him after and and loving him and that he was getting this gratitude was really means everything to me mm-hmm. and that's really but traveling with John Price the cinematographer, who is an experimental documentary, uh, works with Peter Mettler, as an example, if, if, you know, if, 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 if you're familiar. And he's like a landscape artist. So being in the Delta and in the swamps with John was really great, just to look and think and un- try to understand where we were and what was kind of the roots mm-hmm. or the, the ghosts that were around. That well, there's some beautifully shot landscape like yeah it just, there really know, is yeah always amazes me when you work with a great cinematographer i mean yeah. the way they see things and yeah. just the way they can pick up things and yeah yeah so for him the the that was really the for him the landscape was the music mm-hmm. and okay so speaking of music so your choice was not to to dominate the piece with music it was more about the people but you did have music was it difficult to make that selection of music versus um, I don't know. Yeah, well, a... yeah, because, you know, uh, uh, for different reasons. First of all, you have to leave out phenomenal performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Crawfish had Warren Storm. It had uh, Guitar Gable. It had Classy Baloo. And they just weren't anywhere else really in the movie. So I just give them like cameo kind right. of shots, but I couldn't really use them playing. And uh, it seems like a shame. Uh, and then... It was, the film was deliberately made on the fly. So I believe that when you make the film, you have to kind of parallel the way you make it with the way they are and the way they live, being the characters and the environments. So we didn't introduce any lights or we didn't introduce big sound systems. So everything was really kind of like old John Hammond or Alan Lomax kind of, you know, uh, Emmett would do his best, but he only had like two mics. And we had like, you know, you got five minutes, get them on there and let's record. And we're, we're recording like music and we're not really doing it right. You know, fortunately, Emmett brought with him an actual music mic 
one of them big fat ones, more like these. Instead, mm. I, I am a film guy. I have shotgun mics. Like, they're not really made for doing this. And I didn't, I decided I didn't want to bring, I brought Celine Dion sound recorders for one shoot and it was like a gong show. He had like 27 mics and he needed like, and they set everything up and it was just like, but this was grungy. Yeah. And the whole film is kind of grungy. Like we never used a tripod. You know, and the editor's like, why didn't you use a tripod? It's like, well, because we were moving around. We wanted, we wanted energy. But the sound was great. And the sound works. Amazing. And, and, and it's amazing how good it is. Yeah. But there are songs that are absolutely horrible. They're just not I'm in sure. the film. Okay. There's yeah. like moments where like you just, and of course those are the greatest moments, even if they weren't because right. you can't use them now. So right. you're like, ah, we don't have that moment. You know? But uh, yeah, so between going through all those different elements, it's it it's kind of hard. And then, you know, they're talking, but then like Lazy Lester sings that uh, is it Merle Haggard or Hank Williams song, right, yeah. and it's like you got to find a way to put it in the movie. Thank God okay, Bobby so Rush is like sitting there with them because Bobby's kind of the glue, so it makes it easier to drop those songs in. But the other thing that a lot of people don't know is song rights and publishing and what a pain that is for documentary filmmakers was that ever an issue because that's always a consideration when making a movie as yeah. to what you can afford and as soon as it becomes a name brand or whatever it becomes a very expensive thing that do most documentaries can't afford right so we have uh i work at a company that i started a long time ago called i steal film it's a production company out of montreal and it's strictly for feature-length documentaries and it's a kind of it's 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 a grassroots kind of co-op type place. A lot of filmmakers going in and out, and we have all the gear and everything, and they they can shoot and they can edit and they can direct, and it's a place for filmmakers. And, and this is based out of Montreal. Out of Montreal, mm -hmm. and Eddie Edmund Duff uh, has become a music rights expert, like no shy like he's just decided to roll up his sleeves about four films ago when he realized that this is like this is a ghost in the closet <laughs> that you have to know how to do and he's like a crackerjack now and so you know these songs they play a song and it's 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 a melange of four different songs you know half the time the, the lyrics are from yeah, a yeah. different thing and halfway through they shift and he like he went through it systematically and found all the people and figured it all out and one of the things that he did was established a price and got everyone everyone he told everyone that this was the price and if anyone was going to get paid more for a song everyone's price would then match that yeah, price a favorite nation kind of that, exa exactly that's the word i was missing and so he negotiated that way regardless of who the person or if it was Sony or it was Kenny Brown and he stuck to it. And there's a, a, there's a couple of songs that aren't in the movie because we couldn't, we couldn't get it into the favored, favored nation thing. And that was, we weren't going to pay the corporations more than, than the guys. And there was only so much money we had. So we kind of figured it out and tried our best to always go with original music, uh, that the guys had, uh, rights to so that they could get more money i'm gonna i'm gonna let the the church bell ring because i think it adds to the whole thing um well there were great church bells in bentonia <laughs> yeah. that that we that we hear uh, yeah. at the blue front because the clock 
and Bentonia chimes like a church bell. <laughs> so on the hour, you hear dong, 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 then the train goes by. So let me ask you, if you don't mind sharing this information, um, what was the budget for this film? Uh, uh, it's about $600,000 Canadian. Wow. Yeah, so that's pretty good. Because once you get a broadcaster in, that's the key to triggering uh, state money in Canada. Right. So by having the CBC in early allowed us to have a full slate of opportunity. Like all the deadlines right. came while we were still in a position to so be this eligible. Be grants and... Canada Media Fund. Right. SODEC, which is the Quebec Provincial and th- Funder. And did it matter that it wasn't... I mean, I know you're Canadian and the production team is Canadian probably, but did it matter that the subject wasn't Canadian? Did they did it, they ever question that part? They, they do. And that's where I had to, like, I had, like, in my applications, I had, like, a big director statement uh, about why this was important to me and how this was part of my artistic rites of passage and blah, 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 like that, because I knew that there was definitely that outlook that this is an American movie made by a Canadian. It used to be that we had to have Canadian content, but now we don't. We just need to have Canadian points of who's uh, working on the film. So uh, everybody involved in the creation of the film was Canadian. So uh, there's a fund that I I didn't get production, but I got development for. Um, And that was part of their reasoning that did did. Didn't, it didn't have enough Canadian uh, in it, Canadiana in it. Right. But it's amazing that you could do that for 600000 I know it sounds like a lot of, pe- lot of money for a lot of people, but to do a quality documentary like that and done over three years and how many hours of shooting or whatever, I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing piece of film. So. People didn't take full wages. But then I got to I but but then I took them to the blue front. Right. So it was a pretty fair trade off. You want to come and work on this movie? People were like, "Yeah, I want to come work on this movie." Yeah, I'm like, I don't blame those. you, but it's you're not making like a thousand dollars a day to work on the movie. And the editor is a young guy out of the office, Ryan Mullins, and he worked on the movie for like a year. And he would come on location and be like assistant everything, and uh, that way he was familiar and knew all yeah. the characters, so the editing could be concurrently going on we're we're here for hot dogs in toronto um it's it's may of 20 what is it 2016 yeah what's what happens next with this film like how you said cbc's bought it does it go on the main main network or does it go on the documentary channel and what are your plans for this movie going forward? so uh tv wise it'll play on documentary channel okay cbc should play on the main channel but they're not clever enough and uh, i agree in French, it'll play on Canal Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the two two broadcast partners. Um, before that happens, it has a, a theatrical launch coming up starting June third at the Bloor Cinema uh, here in Toronto, mm-hmm. and it, it's going across Canada, uh, Quebec, uh, Vancouver, uh, Kitchener, Kingston, uh, Ottawa, uh, Calgary, Edmonton. Uh, I'll, hopefully, Maritimes will get will fit into there pretty soon. So June, it'll be playing at theaters. And it's still bopping around at festivals. Like uh, this month, it plays in Munich. It plays in Poland. It's going to Australia. Um, Will you be going to all these? I'm going to go to Munich and Poland. And uh, I don't know about Australia. That's not been discussed, really. Um, 
And the, U- and the US? U.S. is just starting. So okay. Canada is because 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 there's no other broadcast sold and I'm not in a hurry because I want it to because once it's on TV, then it stops all other. And the documentary channel has been gracious enough to just be patient, which is great. Like they're not pushing it on the air like the day after hot dogs or something. Right. They're letting the theatrical happen. And that's very gracious of them and appreciative. So in America, it's still wide open and it's played South by Southwest, which, you know, is a big festival for music docs. So it has status. And now we're just going to try to figure out what can we do there. Um, And we're not in a race because uh, it doesn't have a broadcaster attached yet. So we don't have to hurry up at the moment. And America is a different beast. Uh, Anything could happen. If they take the film, they might want to change the title. They might want to change the poster. They might even want me to go shoot more. Mm -hmm. I mean, they sometimes, you know, if you get a big, if if HBO was to come on, Sheila Nevins could look at this film and say, I'm changing it by 15%. Right. You know, there's things that I want to see with this film that aren't aren't happening. And, you know... you play along, I guess. I mean, it's never happened to me, but I know that that's a possibility. So for me, it's getting it to show the guys. And of course, I love playing it in Canada because I'm Canadian and, and this is my home. Mm-hmm. So America, Europe, it's all just bonus. I, when Whenever you had that vision of what it is to where it is today, I mean, I, I presume you're very happy with the final product and you should be, but is it what you thought it would be? Um. You know, the film that motivated me, and it's kind of a distant memory now, and I never rewatched it because I was afraid I'd be disappointed by it, but I love the memory of watching The Last of the Blues Devils, the film uh, shot in Kansas. They all get together, these guys at a legion. And what I really remember is the cars pulling up and them getting out of their cars and kind of walking to the door, and they're all these old big blues cats, and they're all jive-talking to each other. and, And the film... And then the film would start periodically and it would they would like it would be archive and they would be uh, justifying everybody and i was like oh that sucks and then they would like kind of cut back in between as breathers and everybody would be like bullshitting <laughs> and you know someone would start playing the piano and, and i was like that's ah, so great i just love <laughs> this stuff so that was really what i remember there and that's always and i always the working title was always the same last of the blues devils i was really stuck for a title because i couldn't use the title of the film which everyone <laughs> thought the title of the film was going to be last of the blues devils and i'm like well no that's a film and then i ended up using a title that's already an album so i don't know if that was any better but we went through like 43 different titles and then when i am the blues came up i just went that's ah, i'm going to use that and I'm going to apologize to Willie Dixon when I see him, or maybe it'll help his record sales. Because we always uh, highlight Willie's album right. with all our stuff to try to, you know. No, I mean, I think it describes the project very well. Yeah. I think it's a, a brilliant film. Like, I, I think you did an amazing job. And, you know, whatever it was that, that got you into the blues with the, the largest Winnebago or whatever, and to, to where you are today, I mean, congratulations. It's it's. An amazing piece of work, and I think anybody who loves the blues should watch this movie. Yeah, I think and it's really, for your really interest. important. I so. really appreciate your your helping spread the word. Well, thank you for yeah. allowing me to talk to you for yeah. the past hour. So, okay, Great, cool. thanks. Right on, Michael.